Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, educator, actor, and saxophonist from Denver, Colorado, Javon Jackson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, I have Mr. Javon Jackson with us, sir. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. I have to say, even though people don't buy albums anymore, you're album expressions was one of the last ones that I bought. My father loves like cool jazz like that. So he loved that album. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. That was a, a live recording that uh, we literally did um, with no rehearsal. The pianist just happened to be available because the other pianist that was supposed to be able to do it had left the country. So uh, that was uh, Orrin Evans. So that was the one weekend we played together, and I haven't actually played with him since, but I've seen him. But that was a uh, one-time opportunity to have him there with me. Okay. It actually makes me like it more. So, Because <laughs> it comes up often, people over-glamify or romanticize how half these albums are recorded and these sessions are. They think like you guys all practice for a few weeks and then come back. That was literally just like, yeah, here are the charts. We'll wing it. With him, it was. The other two uh, were playing with me, Corcoran Holt and McClinty Hunter. But uh, again, the pianist that I won't call his name, um, he just went moved to Europe. And so I was stuck uh, to try to find someone. And luckily, Orrin um, was available. So he came in and uh, we had a little bit of a rehearsal earlier in the day. But that was uh, for him literally the first time that we played together. And even since, I haven't play with them since that evening okay. now let's just talk about the first thing that the reason one of the reasons why you're here before i geek out too much because i actually do love a lot of your stuff uh the soundtrack for the movie Thank that you. you're on and you wrote please explain that to me how you got that gig and everything about that right the uh documentary we're talking about with peter bradley is about a, a painter, an abstract painter, uh, who I met during my time with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Uh, Peter and Art were friends. So I met Peter, and he liked to talk about saxophonists and music and clothes, and he and I just developed a, a friendship. Um, after Art passed away, uh, Peter and I stayed in contact. And again, we'd go shopping, go eating, and he'd come to see me play. So... We kind of stayed in contact, ended up moving to Jersey, and then we kind of weren't staying in touch as much, and I didn't see him for a period of years, and uh, ran into him again, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago. He was living in, well, maybe not that far back, maybe about four years ago. He's now living in Socrates, he and his wife, and uh, auspicious how we met again, uh, ran into each other, and at that time, someone was doing a documentary on him, and uh, he suggested that uh, he and his wife suggested I do the the music, and so sat down with the filmmaker, and he was interested as well. And so it kind of came together innocently like that. 
in that way, excuse me, and then uh, sat down with the, the filmmaker and we talked about uh, the scenes and the kind of uh, things he was looking for, mood and such. And uh, from there, I wrote the score. Okay. Now, was there any difficulties or hard parts you faced while doing that? No, it went uh, fairly easy uh, knowing Peter and, and some of the uh, artists that he really appreciates, whether it's he loves Art Blakey, he loves John Coltrane, Miles Davis, uh, Charles Mingus, Ray Charles, others. And and then uh, to do uh, some type of justice to him as an individual, knowing him, I was able to um, conjure a melody and then uh, watching the film and his conversation about his mom allowed me to kind of have a, a vision for a theme for her and then other places in the uh, United States that he's lived and been around gave me a vision for how I wanted to give a theme uh, on certain scenes and then just his conversation in the, in the, uh, uh, in the documentary provided me with a little understanding of a, a perspective where I wanted to go with a melody. Okay. When does it officially come out? The film actually has been shown at um, several film festivals starting in January of this year. It was shown at the Slam Dance Film Festival. It's been shown in Detroit at a film festival there, or Detroit, a festival in Miami, at the African Film Festival in New York City. It's being shown at the Woodstock Film Festival in September, which is going to be great because we're going to perform the group that did the music. We're going to do a live performance right after the, the filming. The, I'm sorry, right after the showing of the film in September. Okay. And when could the average person find it or where? Well, as it is now, it's only at uh, film festivals and hopefully the filmmaker is... Um, will be sought out for uh, a situation where it can be available on other platforms, whether it's Hulu or uh, Netflix or Prime Video, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Let's hope in time there's a, a way for that to occur. Okay. Well, that I'm definitely looking forward towards. Have you done any other film ones that I don't know of? The only other writing opportunity I had was uh, some years ago. I was commissioned to write a, a score to a, a silent film for the Syracuse International Film Festival. And uh, each year they select a, a composer and musician to come in and write a score to a silent film. And I selected Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, 1929. And it's based on, uh, loosely based on the, uh, Alfred, I'm sorry, based on uh, Jack the Ripper and um, so they stripped that score and then I wrote a score to that and then that score was performed live in front of an audience in Syracuse of about 800 people which was really great um, someone connected with the festival forgot to push record <laughs> so it never got recorded that's a true story so there's no documentation of the performance but uh it occurred uh, very well from my perspective. I was very happy and grateful for the opportunity. And so since then, I've been uh, sending out to the universe. I'd like uh, more opportunities to write for film or TV or certain situations. So I'm happy that this came about and 
now just trying to make myself uh, a little bit more applicable, available to other opportunities as they might show up. You answered my next question already. He said there's nowhere I could listen to that, so I'm upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm upset too. And at least a bit, well, other stuff I will say is you are, at least in my opinion, one of the people who I believe is doing it correctly in terms of expanding your reach from being in movies and you were even in popular music at one point. That's actually where I first found out about you. My brother kept playing that remix of the Tupac song, the one that you were on. I actually liked the original better, but he loved yours because it was one of those bonus tracks and he kept playing it on loop and loop and loop. (laughs) So I got to ask. What's your brother's name? What's your brother's name? Believe it or not, it's Lancelot. Yeah, I know. I don't know who named us, my mother, but I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, but I just want to say, I want to say thank you over there to him. How did you get that gig? It's got to ask that for him. I have a a childhood friend who now is uh, very uh, involved in uh, publishing uh, as it pertains to uh, artists like uh, Tupac and others. And his name is John Platt. Uh, His pet name, we call him Big John, but John... uh, contacted me and asked me to come over and add some uh, music to that uh, opportunity. That's how that came about. So um, that was a a lot of fun to come over and do that with him. And uh, I didn't get a chance to meet Tupac. They just came over and just allowed me to uh, lay some, what we might call... um, phrases or ideas and they took the ideas and and fused it with the uh with the track i can honestly say my brother's completely jealous of you just the fact that you're on that album (laughs) and 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 fun fact or true honest disclosure at that time i was kind of very much immersed in uh playing uh straight ahead music or jazz music to the point that I didn't know who Tupac was. So when I did it, they sent it to me later. And then uh, all of a sudden I realized who this individual was, but I didn't know. Ironically, we have the same birthday too, Tupac and myself, but I didn't, uh, I didn't know him then when I did it. And then later I became aware of who he was. That's something that I also try to talk about. Like some artists fall way too deep into it now i understand that's how you master the craft it's just that what small bubble of the whole field of music well i don't i don't want to say it's a bubble as much as a person is um really immersed in what they're doing so when you're doing what you're doing um tupac at that time might not have known who Art Blakey was he might not have known who john coltrane was may or may not i don't know but if he didn't that's okay too if he's in a space that allows him to really focus on his art then uh, it's okay for that time now I know and so again we can't all know everything at one particular moment but if we're allowed to uh, develop in the way we need to develop sometimes you do have to kind of hunker down a little bit to really uh, find uh, 
find the the, the the depth of the girth and what it is that you do. Okay. And just to go back at one other thing. So the Malcolm sure. X movie, how did you get that part? It was a Spike Lee movie, everybody. So I was just curious. Right. There was a gentleman named Ricky Gordon who uh, works with Spike and he was charged with putting um, the band together. And so I was selected to do that. Uh, also, I, I knew Mr. Lee, and I mean Bill Lee, who just passed away, Spike's father, because I performed in Bill's uh, quartet for a period of time. So I had a connection with uh, the Lees and, and Spike's uh, uncle is a trumpeter. So I was connected to the Lee family, and then I got the opportunity to, to play in the big band and play the role of uh, Illinois Jaquette. In, in the film, which was a great opportunity to uh, see that scene because um, there was a lot of dancing that involved Lindy Hopping, mm -hmm. and it was a three-day recording to get uh, the dancing right that Spike was doing along with Denzel and some others. So it was, uh, I think that was one of the the uh, the most involved part parts of the film because it was just just wasn't acting there was so much other stuff going on so it was a it was a great experience for me to say to say the least and i just saw spike recently because there was a, a memorial for his father so we just uh celebrate the the, the brilliance of his father uh, in brooklyn actually was it uh yeah on the 23rd which was bill's birthday okay well, sorry to mr lee on that lost to his family. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would say about Spike Lee is as a Nets fan, seeing him at the games is kind of like, come on, guy. Because he's a diehard Knicks fan. But yeah. <laughs> well, he is yeah. from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> he's from Brooklyn too, I believe, though. He's from Brooklyn I'm too, sorry? is he? I said he's from Brooklyn, so it makes sense that he goes yeah, to a Nets but game. I'm just saying, with his Knicks get up. Well, I know. A Knicks fan. We all make mistakes in life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but another thing. I know I'm just fanboying out here, people. I'm sorry. How you, you got the gig with Mr. Blakey? Because I heard you turned down another gig. This is literally from like a third party years ago to join his band. I'm just curious how you got into the band. No, I didn't turn on any gigs to join his band. I, I turned down school. I left college to um, join our Blakey, but no, there was no other opportunity. I uh, uh, went to Berkeley and um, was studying with uh, the great Billy Pierce, and I met uh, Donald Brown, who was uh, is a fabulous pianist and was currently working with the Jazz Messengers. And uh, Donald was the one that arranged for me to um, audition with the Messengers. So... Um, he was a, a large uh, reason for that to occur in that way. And he taught me some of the material and I knew some of the musicians, a couple of the musicians. I knew Wallace Roney and I knew Kenny Garrett at that time. So I went and sat in and uh, Art hired me and that was uh, uh, the beginning of um, uh, probably one of the most incredible experiences I've had with being with a, a, a jazz artist of that ilk and of that uh, level um, in terms of his history and 
all the other musicians that he's uh, been connected with. So that was uh, pivotal for me. At uh, at that time, I was uh, 21 at the time. That's a few things on that. First of all, jealous of you. Second of all, they don't really have any opportunities like that for a lot of the younger artists right now. Yeah, I kind of came in at the last um, part of it where you might call it there was an apprenticeship. So there were bands like uh, Betty Carter had a group that kind of revolved where certain musicians would join. And then after a while, another set of musicians, Horace Silver, was doing the same thing. Or Blakey, uh, who had done it forever. So, um, of course, you know, Miles Davis had groups that... Uh, possibly could change at that time, although the bands were more electric, but with Miles, but that opportunity, like you're saying, uh, where there was mentorship, it, um, it's not really occurring as much as it could be now. Um, but that, that was fortunate to get that kind of, uh, tutelage from someone who, if I asked him a question about Thelonious Monk or Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie or, um, anybody you might name that I might name it was firsthand recollection or was firsthand knowledge or, or, or feedback or perspective because he, he was one of the, um, the people that, uh, made this art form what it is now or how it's grown to, to this level. Uh, and I'm just curious in your opinion, is there a reason why you think we don't see those opportunities anymore? Um, I think that the generation or so after art, which include me, have to do a little bit more um, in the way of uh, providing some opportunities for young people to, to work with us and we can kind of share with them what was shared with us and that way the music can continue. Being a band leader and traveling with groups is... Uh, can be difficult and it's a challenge but I do uh, in my own small way I have a band but um, not traveling as much as art art was on the road all the time so um, it, it is different but there are bands out there but I think um, and also it's more difficult now because um, the clubs that were more readily available to travel in from city to city and in a way, they've kind of, um, I guess, dissipated is yeah, the word. So there's not as many venues that you can play in, whereas uh, 20, 30 years ago, when I was coming up like this, there were more venues in the various cities. So, I mean, there was a venue in Dayton, Ohio. There was a venue in uh, uh other cities that might not normally you would think about clubs, but there's clubs for people to go into. Whereas now, um, it's changed in a way that there's the, the, the amount of, of venues club wise ha has kind of shrank and, uh, it's more concerts now. And so, um, it's just different. It's, it's, that's the way to develop really is, is kind of playing in clubs with the young person. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just um, it's a different time. I guess. That's one of the things I fear. Slowly it dies off. Uh, so 
One other thing on this. Can you tell me an Art Blakey story? You're just traveling on the road. One that you're willing to share with us. Well, um, he just uh, was such uh, a dedicated musician to this art form. And he just wanted the musicians to uh, enjoy themselves. And he wanted to be able to be the uh, conduit for us to have a career. And he really only wanted you to do two things, be dedicated and be yourself. I mean, he, he really liked it when a musician was trying to be themselves and he didn't want anyone to try to be like anyone else, which you really can't be like anyone else. And so he was very um, uh, supportive uh, I'm trying to think of a story. Well, he was my best man, so that was a, okay. a unique yeah, story. Actually, um, tell me about that. <laughs> uh, he uh, he he was late to the airport from New York, getting to uh, Denver, where I got married, my hometown, my town I grew up in, hometown. And so when he got there, his tuxedo was his luggage didn't make it, so he wanted to go get a tuxedo. When I picked him up, it was. 12, 15, I had to take him right to the chapel and uh, he didn't have uh, a tux and he wanted me to go get him fitted for a tuxedo. I said, I can't do that. I don't have time. And um, he blessed me out. <laughs> but I, I, I couldn't take him because I can't be late to my own wedding. So he was furious for the next few hours. Even after we got, I got married, he still was unhappy, but <laughs> What could I do? So, <laughs> and uh, I felt I said, "Man, he might fire me." He was so mad, but I, uh, I couldn't do it. He had to go as he was. So he was so wearing he jeans did. during your wedding. No, he didn't have on jeans. You know, Art hat always was unique, and and his clothes were they were nice, but they weren't. It wasn't the kind of attire that you'd wear to a wedding, especially when you're the best That's man. Still awesome. But, uh, <laughs> He couldn't. He, I couldn't give him a tuxedo. It would have just was no way. So, there's my story. That's better than I was ever going to dream of. And the fact <laughs> that you had Art Blakey at your wedding. Uh, okay, but <laughs> other questions because I had Mister Lewis Hayes on like a year ago. More than honored to have him yeah. on. I'm uh, just curious. Also. How did you get that gig and how was it actually working with him? Because that interview, I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I met Lewis. We all, um, not all, but a lot of the time in, during, during a time when I was uh, playing with R. Blakey, there was a venue called Sweet Basil. And uh, at that time, Lewis Hayes was playing with McCoy Tyner. So I would go down when McCoy Tyner was playing at the Sweet Basils, or if I was playing with our Blakey, Lewis would come down and see the Jazz Messengers. So we started to talk, and we um, developed a friendship, and then later uh, I got a chance to tour with Lewis with Freddie Hubbard, and uh, we, we became close. So and Lewis is um, probably one of the closest um, friends I've made 
I've had the opportunity, to, you know, to, to to develop a relationship with since I've been in New York. And though although he's, you know, he's aging my father, but we just have a good uh, relationship. I think that's one of the unique things about uh, this art form is that musicians, even though there might be a couple generations of uh, between us, we can still come together and, and have these relationships where age doesn't even really matter when you're talking about the music and when you're on stage. And because everyone's a child when they get on stage, I feel, and you get to see the best of us and the worst of us sometimes. But whatever that is, it's available for the audience to see in real time, whoever you are, the audience gets a chance to see that. And, and that's the great thing about playing uh, music. You get to learn about yourself and the audience gets to learn about you. So uh, back to Lewis, I've just known him for a long time. I've, as you are, I'm a fan and uh, admirer of all of the recordings that he's been a part of. And uh, so it, it's, uh, for me, it's an honor to have him as a, as a friend. Okay. And one of the other things I need to also ask or mention, your Chris Cross debut album. Now, of course, I didn't know that at the time because my father used to buy all these jazz albums and I would listen. So apparently that was the first time I heard Mr. Christian McBride. Because he was your bass player, I believe, right? That was the first time you heard him. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. How was he at that age? Was he just that good even then? Yes, Christian's always been super talented. When I would play with the Jazz Messengers, Christian would come down from Philadelphia and come in and listen to the group and say hello. And uh, I, I'm trying to think how I met him a little bit more to start playing with him, but then he was a natural choice to to be on this recording. He was in New York. Maybe I I think I know what it was. He was playing with uh, Freddie Hubbard too, so I was uh, aware of him with Freddie Hubbard. And um, I was very happy to have him on it. And uh, Elvin Jones had come in one time and sat in for Art Blakey one night. Art wasn't feeling well. Elvin came in, so I met Elvin during that time. And James Williams, a pianist, kind of prodded me to call Elvin. And I, uh, as I was deciding to do this record, and asked James Williams to do it. And I didn't know Elvin really other than that one night. And he said, he'll remember you. Why don't you give him a call? And I did give him a call. And he was gracious enough to do the recording. Yeah, and, and his wife, Keiko, God rest their souls. They came in, and uh, that was a thrill of a lifetime for Elvin to be there and, and support me. And then later, I I worked with his uh, Elvin Jones Jazz Machine, and uh, he's a genius of the drums. I mean, he's just an unbelievable uh, talent and uh, individual. I mean, I think you're amazing too. So the same, throwing it right back at you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so here's a hard question, and I know you might dodge me the question. Okay. Working with Mr. Christian McBride versus Mr. Ron Carter, what is the difference? Well, number one there, um, Christian comes from Ron Carter, right? So it'd be like saying, um, who's better, you or your father? Okay, true but I didn't mean it that way fair <laughs> so um, Christian has different influences because of the times that he grew in grew up in whereas Ron 
has the influences that he was influenced by, which would be uh, European classical music and some other uh, types of music that he listened to, not to speak for Ron. And then where Christian is influenced by, among other things, James Brown and other kind of uh, artists, but definitely Ray Brown and all the other kind of artists that he's listening to. Christian has a, a, a very uh, unique palette that he works from. So does Ron Carter. So they just have a different way of, um, as we all do, approaching the way they approach. But I would like to say, you know, Ron is... Um, it's Ron Carter, I know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's like saying, okay, Javon Jackson and Wayne Shorter. It, it, okay. It, it's, they're just, it's just two different... Those are the Greek gods. They're, 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 and Christian's unbelievable too, but Ron, I mean, Ron Carter is... That's um, I, I just don't see it to com- compare them because they're just it's just two separate okay. eras. It'd be like trying to compare Muhammad Ali to Jack Johnson. He just Muhammad had what he had, but that's Jack Johnson. Okay. That's a horrible question, everyone. I admit that. <laughs> I'm not saying it's horrible. I'm just I don't know how to to make it a comparative because they're just two different generations. You couldn't have Christian without Ron. You can't have Ron without what came before him. And then it, it, it goes on. Okay. So in general, what do you think of the modern jazz scene right now? You can be honest. Sir. You think there's hope for it of expanding? Do you think it's going to detract? I mean, if you think about it, look at all of the countries that we can go to that have jazz musicians. Look at all the um, ethnicities that play jazz music. Look at now the opportunities that we have with ladies or women playing the music. So it's 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 expanded like never before. So it's different. But look at all the jazz, Look at all the look at all of the um, academic institutions that have jazz programs. Uh, you could go to any part of the world and someone's trying to play jazz music so it's 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 vibrant like never before is it different sure but it's expanded i don't think it's going backwards okay are you still teaching by the way right i'm the chair of the jackie mclean institute at the university of hartford and how is that does that get does that get a bit boring every year when you get a new set of kids? Is there other? No, because um, every year it gives me an opportunity to refine, refine what I'm trying to do as a educator and also help impart whatever it is that I know to these young people, and hopefully um, give them the real uh, skinny, maybe if you might say it, on how. Um, I see and, and the rest of the uh, people in our department to equip them with uh, some sense of a skill set so they can have a career. So it'll be different for them as it was for me and it's different from the person before me, the generation before me. In some ways, it uh, it becomes a little easier to play the art form in terms of developing or having technique. But uh, in some ways, I think it's a little more difficult to find your own voice because I think that the students aren't performing out in public as much. And I think that's how you 
it's like a basketball player. You can practice and shoot jump shots all by yourself in your backyard or in your front, you know, on at a you know at the high school uh, gym. But at some point, you got to play with people, and then you got to play in front of people, and that's a different dynamic. And you have to develop how to get along with other ball players and how to 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 sync up. And so I think that's what the musician of today has to consider because the the uh, college environment is a great environment, but it can be sterile. So you have to get in a situation, you have to play in front of Leander and and then see how you're going to respond to him or her. And so that's that's a different thing when you have to play in front of an audience. And um, that, that, that aspect, again, is... The, the, the venues there's not as many venues so and there's more and more musicians so how do all these musicians make a way for themselves and a place for themselves which they'll have to uh, do some work on finding a way to be viable could you go into that a little more I thought I just did <laughs> <laughs> I meant like okay uh, they have to find, they have to they have to do work and they have to um do the right kinds of things that uh, make them applicable for situations. They have to go out and hustle. And sometimes you can hustle on the internet and that's all great too. And there's been a lot of people that have been able to do concerts and things through Zoom, but ultimately you want to be able to play in front of people in a live setting. That's the best way this art form is translated or any uh, aural art, which is that's what music is is to be able to translate in front of a, a live audience and for them to be able to receive you in that manner. Unlike this situation where uh, it can work like this, we're having a good time together, but more time than not, if I was playing with a band and you were on the other side of this, it would be great, but it's better when you can see it and 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 uh, experience it in that manner. Wouldn't you say? I actually agree with you on that. I was not a fan of Zoom concerts during the whole lockdown. Mm -hmm. I did. But they have their place and they they did in some ways. um, It fit and helped us through a tough time. But now that we've come on the other side of it, it's back to where it was. You got to get out and play in front of people and people want to come out and people want to support music and they want to hear musicians and they want to feel it in that manner. I agree on that. Okay. Another fanboy moment. Mr. Ben E. King. Okay? You got to play with him. How was that experience? That was that was awesome. It was a, a great uh, record uh, promoter named Linda Nash who put a record together, <clears throat> did a record on uh, Ben E. King singing standards. And so Linda reached out to various artists to be a part of that project with myself, Randy Brecker, um, great, uh, the, the late, great Larry Willis, some others performed on the uh, record. Steve Davis, trombonist were on it. And so, um, after that, then we did, um, a select amount of musicians, myself, um, uh, myself and Randy Brecker did some concerts with a uh, Mr. King, as special guests in Canada. We did, did we do three or four concerts? And that was fun because on the, um, <clears throat> when we weren't playing, we'd sit 
beside each other and have conversations. And then I, I remember I got my father on the phone and said, Dad, I got somebody for you. I want to say hello to you. And I gave the phone to Benny King. He was, that was, he was shocked by that one. So, uh, yeah, I was, a, I'm a fan. I was a fan. And, uh, so that was a, a great experience. Like I said, I think you're one of the artists that lived the dream. Too modest about it, though, talking to you. <laughs> I said, what is something just your students that are coming in completely misunderstand about the music world? Because at least you have you see it every single year. Oh, I think sometimes they don't. uh realize that uh, that this is a journey and that uh, <clears throat> you got to love it. You can't like it. You can't like it a little bit. You got to love it. And the love for it will allow you to um, uh, appreciate the ups and downs that might come with um, developing and uh, also allows you to see where well, any success is not a straight line up. It's a zigzag to get success. And um, also they're realizing that going to college for three or four years does not guarantee you a music career. It guarantees you a certain amount of information for a music career, but then it, there's a lot of work. And I think sometimes some students don't realize how much work you have to put in. Okay. That is fair. <laughs> so, especially you with your resume, your contacts, and all this stuff, if you could remove all the barriers, all the constraints, but to say Sony gave you $10 million for an album, what would it be and who would be on it? Living? Oh, yeah, it's, hard. it's really hard. <laughs> yes, we'll say living right now. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I mean, you'd be surprised. I would probably call Stevie Wonder, probably call Bob Dylan. Um, let's see. Gladys Knight. Uh, Joni Mitchell. That would just give you an idea, maybe in terms of just being wide open, that uh, those kinds of artists. So, uh, and I try to find a way to do something with all those um, incredible artists. Not to mention this, there are some jazz artists I've never really done anything with. But uh, yeah, that uh, I'd sit down and, and, and have a game plan and try to do something that would incorporate some of those types of art. I didn't mention Patti LaBelle, who I love. So, um, yeah, that uh, hopefully that gives you an idea where I'd go. I'd try to uh, go to some different places for myself, which I try to anyway. Again, I've uh, been fortunate that uh, I've recorded uh, Frank Zappa. I've recorded music with Carlos Santana. I've recorded Muddy Waters, I've recorded um, Bobby Womack, um, 
Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, Kim. I like him. Yeah. Um, a lot of various artists that That's I'm a fan of. So, um, <laughs> Roger, uh, Zap. Uh, so try to be open, and it helps me by doing some different things like that to uh, allow me to be able to find myself a little better. Okay. Uh, honestly, I don't know which Santana song have you recorded. The Santana song was called... Mm, wait a minute. It's from a record called Good People. Um, okay. That's yeah, your I, job. I didn't know uh, that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, hold on a minute. I got. Let me just think for a second here. Um... Uh, da, 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 let me think. Let me think. Um, I guess. Let me see here. Um, what is the name of that song? Um, yes, I know. Very unprofessional. My. It part. was <laughs> called uh, "Floor de Canela." That's it. No problem. Florida Canelo. Mm -hmm. Okay. My mistake. And I'm sorry I didn't know that one. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's been a while ago, that recording is some years back. Was he in the studio when you were there? Carlos Santana? No, I've okay. never met Carlos. Okay. No. I was, this is a long time ago. So I was, again, a lot of these things I would like to say I was doing before people really started doing this stuff. I I don't know anybody's recorded Frank. Well, there's one gentleman that plays a lot of Frank Zappa music, but uh, I don't remember anybody that's really recorded that kind of stuff. And I was just doing that because I was trying to find another way to get me out of um, the kind of same maybe playing style that I felt that I needed to get out of. So another style of music made me uh, focus another way as a soloist. Did you feel trapped or something? No, I didn't feel trapped. I wanted to open myself up oh. okay. even more. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, you're living the life, in my opinion. So if you could go back to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give him? And I know that's really hard because you were on the road like three, four years later with one of the greats. But what advice would you give him? Uh, don't be so judgmental, maybe. And also, uh, don't be so hard on oneself. Don't um, beat me up for every little thing maybe that I, I wasn't able to do. And just allow yourself to be okay with making some mistakes. Okay. Well, sir, I took enough of your time. <laughs> I'm more than honored. Can you tell the people your website, your social media, where to find a movie, at least online, all that stuff? Right. If you go online to With Peter Bradley, the film can be found on that website, pretty sure. With Peter Bradley, if you look it up in that way. Uh, I do Instagram. I'm available there. I have a my website, javonjackson.com. And uh, the new CD, which we're talking about, uh, soundtrack and original score CD, is available on all platforms. It's available on Apple. It's available um, Amazon, 
any kind of platform, Pandora, you can find it. It's available. If you if you come to my website and you email me, uh, we'll mail you a signed copy. So that's all available too. If people reach out, just email me and we'll make sure that uh, we'll get that uh, satisfied for anybody that would like any CDs. And we didn't oh, talk yeah, about G. my mistake which, <laughs> with Nikki yes. Giovanni, which I was very honored and I'm so happy to have her friendship that uh, that recording came out last year and it was nominated for NAACP Image Award and so we've still been doing a quite a bit of touring together and I'm really honored about that recording because she selected all the spirituals that we did as an album spirituals except for one and uh, that was a, a joy to make and we we're going to Chicago in September mm-hmm. planned to Hyde Park um uh, it's a church they were playing, Hyde Park, uh, shucks, I'm not the name of the church, but it's a church in Hyde Park in Chicago. And then we're going to be performing in Virginia, Virginia Tech in, in November. Some other isolated things are coming up too. So we played Atlanta Jazz Festival earlier this year in June. So that uh, is uh, a relationship I'm just so um, elated to talk about. Or how did that connection even come across? At the University of Hartford, um, when I got there, I felt that uh, more could be done during the month of Black History Month of bringing uh, uh, activists and uh, civic leaders to the university for students of all colors to hear the stories of these incredible people. Dr. Cornell West is a friend of mine, so he was the first person I reached out to. And Dr. West came. I was very happy. Then the next year, uh, incredible Sonia Sanchez uh, came, Sister Sonia came to the university. Then the next year, I reached out to uh, Dr. Angela Davis, and then she came to the university, um, and they, she received an honorary doctorate. And I appreciate the president at that time for doing that for her. Then the next year, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson came, and then the next year, all these individuals I reached out to on my own. I didn't know them. I just contacted them and asked them if they'd come to the university, and they all came. So the next year after Michael Eric Dyson, Dr. Michael, I reached out to Nikki Giovanni, and Nikki came, and that's how that occurred. And when she was there, piped up coming through the auditorium was, uh, ironically, uh, Charlie Hayden and Hank Jones did a recording called Still Away. It's an album of spirituals. And uh, Nikki was listening to it, and she had heard it, but it had been a while, and she was just commenting how it was great to hear jazz musicians playing spirituals and how much she loves spirituals. And so she and I went to dinner later that night. <clears throat> I said, I'll be in touch, and I, um, I'm going to uh, ask you about something. And didn't really know what I was going to ask her, but I uh, thought about that night. I said, well, what if... During the dinner, I said, what if I ask her to pick some spirituals for me and that'd be the next record? So I kind of gave her a forecast that I was going to call her and I called her uh, a day later and said, would you be willing to pick uh, 10 spirituals and that'll be my next recording? And so she picked them. And then she sang on one particular uh, piece, which is called Night Song, which is a piece that was written for, excuse me, Mm -hmm. Golden Boy, the uh, musical with yes. Sammy Davis Jr. But this rendition that she loved was, um, it was sung by her close friend, Nina Simone. So she wanted to try to sing 
to honor Nikki, to, Nikki yeah. to honor Nina. And she did a great job. And so that's why this recording it, it's, uh, has a special place for me. Once again, sir, you're living the dream. <laughs> in my honest opinion. <laughs> okay. And I'll end it there. And everyone, it's Leander from Improv Exchange. Please reach out, check out his stuff, especially the documentary when it comes out. Okay. And have a good day. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. And uh, I want to say uh, much respect to what you do regarding interviews and <clears throat> making a way and giving musicians opportunity to kind of uh, uh, share their story in their own words. So I, I want to acknowledge you for Thank that. Thank you, sir. It's an honor. <laughs> okay. Have a good one, everyone. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.